The best weapon you can have in the Prohibition War is your mind. Fill your head with the knowledge you need by checking out this latest entry in the Russ Belleville Show's Reformer's Reader. Welcome back, everybody. Today in the Reformer's Reader, we get a chance to have another guest that we love to talk to. John Hudak from the Brookings Institute is on the line. John, welcome back to the show. Hello, John. Do we have you on the line? Oh, my goodness. Once again, having some audio difficulties here with uh, our connection. Let me... uh, We'll try to redial John and get him here on the phone from the Brookings Institute uh, and uh, talk to him about what's happening with his new report that's entitled The Medical Marijuana Mess, A Prescription for Fixing a Broken Policy. And uh, let's see if we've got uh, John on the line now. John, can you uh, can you hear me okay out there? I can. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to have you here. We... uh, had some technical difficulties, but it seems like everything's okay. I was introducing people to your the thesis of your paper, the medical marijuana mess, but I'm sure you can do a better job than I. Tell people what is the medical marijuana mess we're in. So uh, what I'm talking about in my latest Brookings essay is a situation we have in the United States in which the federal government has used Band-Aids to fix what are gaping wounds in public policy, and that is... Uh, a federal government acknowledgement that medical marijuana programs exist in the United States and and it's very difficult for the federal government to shut down state systems and a laissez-faire approach has been seen as the proper solution but the reality is that approach from the Obama administration has created numerous problems facing patients and businesses and accountants and lawyers and regulators all across the United States. And so that fix really isn't a fix. Some people would argue that the uh, Obama administration at least has been laissez-faire, unlike perhaps another administration, maybe a McCain or a Romney administration, that might have gone whole hog into filing injunctions and sending in the DEA. but do you think that, uh, that, that people don't give enough uh, credit to President Obama in that respect? I, I think that's right. I mean, Barack Obama has been the most pro-marijuana reform president we've had in our history, and he's taken steps that have been different than previous presidents and were probably different, as you said, than if Mitt Romney were elected president or John McCain were elected president. But at the end of the day, uh, challenges still exist. And while the Obama administration policy policies may be something that reform advocates are happy with, uh, there are different steps that could be taken that could clear up what are some very serious federal and state versus federal policy challenges. I'd imagine that uh, a lot of that you're talking about are the banking problems and the uh, tax problems that are out there. Uh, some of the things that would be addressed by the Carers Act in the Senate, right? Yeah, there are issues involving veterans, there are issues involving banking, um, but general issues around access, general issues around research. The idea that if you live in one state, you might have access to, you know, whole flower marijuana, you might have access um, to CBD oil, but if you live five miles away on the other side of the state border, you have to remain sick. You don't have access to those materials. And that's not how public policy is necessarily supposed to work, and it's something that is really putting people at risk. And so the uh, issues of the banking issues and, and uh, issues uh, 
abounds for the marijuana industry, but basic patient access is something that oftentimes is overlooked. Very, very well put. We're speaking with John Hudak from the Brookings Institute. And uh, if people want to get this uh, report of yours online, this white paper, uh, how can they do that? They can go online to brookings.edu slash marijuana mess, and that will take them to not only the uh, uh, marijuana mess essay, but links to a variety of the work that we've been doing over the past several years at Brookings on the topic. Excellent. Now, uh, with respect to what you are addressing there, would the Carers Act go a long way into addressing some of these problems, or is there still other areas that need to be tackled? The Carers Act goes a long way in terms of addressing a lot of the problems that exist uh, with regard to federal policy and with regard to state-federal relations, but there's a lot of work to be done. And so issues involving veterans, where veterans can't go to VA hospitals, even in states with legal medical marijuana programs and ask for a recommendation. And in fact, if they do ask for a recommendation or, God forbid, admit to using medical marijuana uh, illegally, uh, oftentimes they face some real repercussions from the VA system. It also helps fix uh, tax issues. It helps essentially empower states that have taken a step forward in terms of marijuana reform to maintain their state system, but also have some version of federal protection under the system. It doesn't force states that have marijuana as an illegal substance to opt in, but it allows those states who have chosen to opt in to have broader protection. Sounds like some great policy recommendations, folks. You can learn more at brookings.edu slash marijuana mess. And, uh, John, another headline that uh, went all across the mass media this past week was uh, the DEA indicating that uh, before the middle of 2016 is over, they'll make an announcement on rescheduling petitions. Uh, First of all, do you see rescheduling as something that can have a major impact on this marijuana mess? And second of all, do you really think they're going to do anything different uh, other than just kick the can down the road? So on the first point, you know, there are many in the uh, reform community who think of rescheduling as something that won't matter or something that might empower big pharma or too small of a step to be worth the effort. The reality is, I think, for many uh, reform advocates, any means by which the federal government is going to signal that they're changing their tune, that they're listening to the medical and scientific communities, and that they're willing to expand research, has to be seen as a win on their behalf. And so rescheduling is going to help researchers answer some of the questions that exist out there around the efficacy of marijuana in, in therapeutic use. And that, that basis in itself has been what the federal government has used to deny marijuana status as a drug for decades. And so if you can start to answer those questions, I think you can start to break down talking points, which in and of itself has, has some value. Now, as to the question of whether the DEA is ready to do this, uh, the DEA, I think, is loath to reschedule marijuana but they're also currently facing a rapidly changing public opinion landscape, a rapidly changing scientific community, and frankly, they recognize that if they don't change, the country is going to change without them. And so now is probably the best time uh, there has ever been in the policy world to see DEA make this change, but uh, 
I'll, I'll be convinced of it when they finally make that announcement. <laughs> yeah, I would like to see that too. Uh, now, you also uh, made a brief mention that we have federal issues to deal with and then also federal state issues to deal with. Uh, what are some of the conflicts federal state-wise that are part of this marijuana mess? Well, a lot of the banking issues um, exist uh, in this federal state uh, uh, space. And so uh, states have made efforts to give banks cover or to set up co-ops or credit unions or other types of institutions that can allow uh, cannabis enterprises to have access to basic financial products like checking accounts or savings accounts or business loans. But at the end of the day, these institutions are still regulated by the Federal Reserve or they're still uh, trafficking in banknotes, which are Federal Reserve banknotes. And so most of the states that have tried this have failed. And so uh, banking is, is a big deal. Taxes are another big deal. Cannabis enterprises, for the most part, are not able to write off the standard business taxes that any other business in the United States would be allowed to do. And uh, th- those are issues that even when states make reforms, the federal government is uh, setting up roadblocks to allow these businesses to function in uh, a, a normal way. And, I mean, there are enforcement issues, there are regulatory issue, issues, there are product safety issues, but the federal government could play a much more major role in helping states regulate and run their own systems. And right now they're just sort of whistling and letting everything happen outside of uh, their, not control, but their ability to influence the process in a positive way. So uh, the state of Oregon here, uh, Governor Kate Brown just recently signed a bill that uh, made changes to Oregon's banking laws with respect to uh, marijuana industry. But but these laws being passed right now, are they just symbolic in nature? They, they make us feel good, but they're not really going to help until the feds do something? Yeah, there, there are a lot of states that have made these efforts. Uh, Colorado has, um, Governor Brown now has in, in Oregon, and, and others have as well. And each of them is a bit of a test case. It's trying to see how will not only the federal government respond, but how will financial institutions respond. So far, financial institutions have not responded well to these efforts because at the end of the day, they're trafficking in in CYA public policy, too. They don't want to get shut down. They don't want their assets frozen. And even though the banking industry is a risky enterprise, when it comes to cannabis, bankers are risk-averse. And so no one has really cracked the code yet. The code gets cracked when the federal government reforms in this area. And until then, these piecemeal efforts um, just haven't been that successful. John Hudak is from the Brookings Institute, and the uh, paper is The Medical Marijuana Mess, A Prescription for Fixing a Broken Policy. And you can get that at brookings.edu slash marijuana mess. And uh, before we let you go here at the top of the hour, John, uh, with Marco Rubio dropping out of the presidential race, we no longer have any candidates who are vociferously anti-marijuana. I mean, we get uh, Ted Cruz and and, uh, Donald Trump with kind of let's have a state's rights attitude toward it. Uh, Hillary Clinton has a rescheduling attitude. Bernie Sanders has a descheduling attitude. But how much can the president, no matter who it is, affect these changes that you need uh, to recommend, that you're recommending in your report? Well, the president has huge influence. You know, right now the federal uh, position on marijuana exists because of a memo out of the Justice Department. Well, that memo in some ways functions like an executive order. The next president could reverse that in an instant. 
and the entire House of Cards can collapse. What we, what we have now with the five uh, presidential can, candidates uh, left in place, Cruz, uh, Kasich, Trump, Sanders, and Clinton, are people who are, at a minimum, happy with the Obama policy. They're not going to take a step backwards. And there are a lot of reasons uh, why that's true. But for the first time in, in American history, you have a slate of presidential candidates who are essentially signaling to the country, if you're a marijuana reformer, things will not get worse. They'll either, either stay the same or I, as president, will make things better for your community. And it shows the maturity in cannabis policy. It shows that even presidential candidates have to talk about cannabis not as a pun, not as a punchline, but as public policy. And that's a tremendous advance when we look back at where this policy area was 5, 10, 15 years ago. John Hudak from the Brookings Institute. We always like having you on the show. Thanks for joining us, and uh, good luck on everything you have going. Hey, Russ. Thanks a lot for having me back. Uh, good. Check it out. Uh, Brookings.edu marijuana slash marijuana mess and you can get that information and folks that's all the time we got here for hour one thanks for joining us stay tuned for hour two Toker Talk Radio's next we'll take your calls at 971-533-7111 for everyone here at CannabisRadio.com I'm Radical Russ live in beautiful legal potland Oregon and until next time take care of each other Tokers This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. It's time for Toker Talk Radio, the voice of the marijuana nation. What are you people? On dope? Or you can tope. I am hailed. Or you can talk. I experimented with marijuana. Or you can talk and talk. Ten federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. While we talk about tope on Toker Talk Radio. So, by the way, when it comes to pot, you know, if you're 40 years old, you live in a log cabin in Oregon, you got 12 giant pot plants in your backyard, have a ball. Live from beautiful Portland, Oregon, at Rolla J Studios. Freedom! Freedom! Hey, this is great! Freedom! Yes, I can of it! Plus your calls, live at 971-533-7111. They're walking on their pants with their cap on backwards, listening to the end of a man, the Snoopy Snoopy Poop Dog. What's to keep somebody from getting all potted up on weed and then getting behind the wheel? Gateway theory doesn't work. It's a reality. Holland, is it real? We're locking up people that take a couple of puffs of marijuana, and, and the, the next thing you know, they got 10 years. And now, here's your host, the guru of ganja graphics, the sultan of sativa statistics, and the worst nightmare of a reefer mad prohibitionist. A polite, perspicacious, productive pothead with a propensity for PowerPoint. Radical Russ Belleville. Thank you, thank you. Welcome back, everybody. Hour two, Toker Talk Radio. 
where you are the voice of the marijuana nation. So glad to have you here. Oh, a raucous applause. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bring that down just a little bit. You guys are crazy. Well, it's back to being gray and cloudy here in Oregon. I can't see Mount Hood out that window, and I can't see Mount St. Helens out the other window. So <laughs> time for me to hit the road. The sunshine is gone. I've got to go chase the sun. We're headed out to uh, Washington, D.C. on Thursday and really looking forward to it, although I understand it's been kind of cold on the eastern seaboard. We'll see what the uh, weather turns out to be, but I'll be uh, covering the Students for Sensible Drug Policy conference out there in Washington. It's happening in Arlington. And I also get the opportunity to hang out with my friend Keith Strop, the founder of Normal. And it's my hope that we get a chance to have a good, intimate conversation about what's happening in marijuana law reform. And we'll bring that to you here as an exclusive on the Russ Belville Show. We got a lot of changes coming up for the Russ Belville Show, too. Uh, got to do a rebuild on my website. I've got some new posts up there at RadicalRust.com, but we need to rebuild, put some of the Cannabis Radio branding on that, maybe reconfigure it a little bit, modernize it a bit for tablets and everything, make it a little more podcast-friendly, and we'll be bringing back the Russ Belville Show VIPs, very important potheads. No, very important people. And... Uh, You'll be able to get other exclusive content and all sorts of discounts through the Russ Belville Show and our sponsors and suppliers if you become a VIP. So we'll get that set up, uh, I imagine, around May. We'll probably be rolling that out. And if you were a previous 420 Radio VIP, you will be grandfathered in. We'll just port you right over, and you'll be a Russ Belville Show VIP. Some of the cool things include your own custom Russ Belville Show pin and um, like I said, we'll have all sorts of content and discounts available for you. So uh, I had a uh, listener from Texas who's uh, in the chat room, said he was going to be calling in. So we've got the phone lines open. We'll wait for that call. Uh, it says he disagrees with him with something he's heard me say year after year, which is, um, yeah, that's good. I'm glad people disagree with me. Uh, Kelly in the chat room says he never got swag from the 420 Radio VIP. Oh, Kelly, email me. I'll, I'll get that stuff to you. Uh, radicalrust at gmail.com may have uh, fallen through the cracks. I've, I've had to move a couple of times, <laughs> so things have gotten a little chaotic. Appreciate your patience though, and appreciate your support. You know, I, I, um, I've never been more sure about anything in my life than what I'm doing right now, traveling across the country, meeting reformers, pushing for the end of adult marijuana prohibition, learning about the topic, researching the science, the history, the culture everything having to do with cannabis. This is my life's mission, and I couldn't be more honored that you guys help support me do that. So thank you so much. And so long as you keep doing that, I'll keep doing this, and I'll keep bringing you free content weekdays on CannabisRadio.com so you can listen on your commute or while you're trimming or whatever it is you're doing when you're listening to this podcast. All right, we're going to take a break. And uh, in two minutes, we'll be back, uh, maybe with a caller. If not, we'll discuss some more about that Australian medical marijuana and how medical marijuana headlines aren't, aren't as fun as they used to be. You're listening to Toker Talk Radio, hour two of the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com, live from Portland, Oregon.
This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Remember, friends, there's more to life than marijuana. I just can't remember what it is. Why'd I come in here? You're tuned into the Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, everybody. Nine minutes after the hour, and uh, I hope we've got our caller on the line. He's been trying to dial in. I saw the voice message came through, so I just made the dial back. I hope you can forgive me for dialing you back, but uh, do we have our Texas toker on the line? You do. How's it going, Mr. Belleville? I'm doing fantastic, but uh, uh, Mr. Belleville's somewhere in Nampa, Idaho right now. That's my dad. <laughs> I'm Radical <laughs> Russ, man. What's happening? <laughs> hey, uh, I just wanted to call in. Uh, first of all, just wanted to say uh, thanks for everything you're doing. I've been listening since normal show live days and uh, listening and learning. Thank but, you. Uh, I wanted to call in because uh, there's something I sadly have to disagree with uh, that, that I've heard you say uh, don't, you know, don't, over and over again. Don't be sad, because I, I could be wrong. Well, actually, uh, I believed it, too, <laughs> uh, okay. in, until about this time last year. Uh, and that's that uh, uh, the herb is a uh, a more social drug than than, than other drugs. Okay. Uh, I think you mentioned the anecdote that, you know, you never see a, a beer circle. Yeah. And... Right. Yeah. And, and uh, up until Cannabis Cup in Denver last year, I totally agreed. Um, but one thing that I uh, I noticed and, and was kind of saddened by uh, was the fact that when, when everybody has their own stash, uh, you're less likely to uh, to want to wanna share spit with, with your neighbor mm, that you don't know. Yeah. No, I think you're. I think you're onto something there. There's a there's a great Chief Greenbud song called uh, uh, "When Pot Was Illegal," and it goes, "When pot was illegal, it used to be fun. You could roll into town and not know anyone, right?" And it was all about how right. being outlaws, we had this shared community where you know you had to share weed. But now, and I agree exactly. with you on this point because I've been to some of these cups, you know, especially with younger people, and it's all vape pens now. And everybody's just got right. their own vape pen, and they're not passing that around or sharing. So you may be onto something there. So yeah, I was just going to say I, I think that's a probably more of a, a function of prohibition than than the fact that it's yeah. uh, necessarily more social. Yeah. So I guess I guess now we'd have to like evaluate. You know, now that we can tease the prohibition out of it, right? Now, like you said, everybody can have their own stash. Now we have to figure out. All right, so does the psychological effect? of cannabis versus alcohol make a difference into whether or not people are social. You can argue with alcohol that it lowers your inhibitions. So, you know, you're more likely to have fun and party and maybe with marijuana, you can argue it makes you more introspective. And so, you know, the, the pharmacology of it may, may actually make us less social. So it'll be something we'll have to look at. Yeah, absolutely. Right on. Well, I appreciate you calling in, man. And, and uh, you're in uh, North Dallas. Is that right? That's correct. Far out, man. I'll be out there yeah, for the uh, to... the uh, Global Cannabis March out there in Fort Worth on uh, May 7th. Yeah, looking forward to seeing you. I love it. Every time I go to Texas, I have a great time. Right on. Right, thanks for calling hey, thanks in. Thanks for having me on, Russ. You bet. Appreciate that. Although, actually, I called him. So. 
<laughs> but he did call in first. We just playing telephone tag, and that's cool. That's please disagree with me, please, please. That's how I learn. That's how I hone my arguments. Right? Like, imagine like you were a, a ninja and you never trained, you never fought, you never had any sparring. Right? Your skills would decline. No matter how much you train on your own, your skills would decline. You need battle. You need to hone your skills with an opponent. And so if you disagree with me, please call in. I I appreciate that. You may find we don't really disagree that much. Anyway, the phone line is 971-533-7111. Toker Talk Radio, Hour 2. You are the voice of the marijuana nation. Let me get back to this story we covered uh, briefly in the headlines. And it was about Victoria, the state in Australia, and this is where Melbourne, Australia is located. Victoria has become the first state to legalize medical cannabis in Australia. And this has generated some international headlines. Wow, you know, legalized medical cannabis. Yay! Yay! But these headlines now are be- slowly becoming less and less celebratory for me. Because once you start reading the story, it's not about medical marijuana like we would think of it in the West Coast, where a patient who's suffering can plant some seeds in a pot and grow a plant they could harvest and then use to treat themselves at relatively low cost. No, this is one of these medical marijuanas where the state's going to license a few commercial growers who have to pass enormous financial and regulatory hurdles to get into the game and they'll manufacture some non-smoked cannabis oils and tinctures and balms and lotions and pills and inhalers or anything else that you can't smoke anything that takes it away from being a bud that's what you'll be able to get your hands on in victoria australia and this is you know this is going along with the trend that we've seen in minnesota and new york and what they're proposing in pennsylvania and some other states this whole idea of this non-smoked medical marijuana it's really the only direction medical marijuana could have gone rhetorically and strategically our opponents know they've lost the argument on whether or not marijuana is medicine it's, you know, there's no denying it, especially after the Sanjay Gupta specials and you see these seizing little kids that become healthy again. There's no denying it anymore. But the uh, way they can deny it is through the successful demonization of tobacco smoking. Smoking has become a nasty thing. Smoking is something lower class, degenerate, ew, smoking is disgusting kind of thing. Again, not my opinion, just you know, talking about what our societal framing is right now. So our opponents, to some, some degree of success, are pulling in that disgust and that social disapproval of smoke and attaching it to marijuana. And that's, and that's happening in the non-smoked medical marijuana states, as if Smoking the marijuana would somehow be non-medical for these people, but they can attack it because of this fear of smoke in the tobacco frame. And this is extended even into the recreational marijuana frame here in the state of Oregon, where they amended our Clean Air Act to include secondhand smoke from cannabis. And the whole premise of the act was the secondhand smoke from tobacco is shown to be harmful 
and that's harmful for workers and people in public buildings, and so we need to ban it. So they just tacked on something else that hasn't been scientifically shown to have those same harms. They're just using the harms of tobacco smoke in a guilt by association to attack cannabis smoke. And and they're winning. It's working in the medical marijuana realm because it forces us, if we're trying to defend a whole plant medical marijuana, it forces us to defend people smoking a medicine and, and, and no other medicine is smoked. And we get that attack from the Kevin Sabet handbook of, well, we don't smoke opium. We've got morphine. We don't smoke opium. Now, we know that's that it's fallacious in that just because it's being smoked, just because the route of administration might be disapproved on by society doesn't mean it doesn't actually work medically. We know the facts. Facts don't always help when you're dealing with these debates. These are debates based on emotion and prejudice and fear. So sometimes the facts don't help. And in this case, we're losing this battle. Medical marijuana is increasingly becoming more medical and less marijuana, as I predicted it would. The end path of medical marijuana is GW Pharmaceuticals' bottom line. Simple. Because medical is a bigger frame than marijuana. We tried to use medical to save marijuana. Marijuana was in this terrible, awful frame throughout the 60s and 70s and some of the 80s of being the stoners and the losers and the gateway drug and all the terrible things they said about it. And so in the 90s, some of the reformers said, hey, to rescue this frame, we'll reframe it with medical marijuana. Now we've got a new frame. Marijuana is something good that helps sick people with AIDS and cancer. Marijuana is a good thing. It's medical. Problem is, once we landed into that medical frame, we now became subject to everything else in the medical frame. Doctors, prescriptions, dosages, potencies, uh, 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 side effect lists, and so forth. So we got stuck into this paradigm that says to get your healing, you have to go to the learned physician in the white coat who's paid through the uh, paid with the, the insurance money. We, we, we bought into the very paradigm that medical marijuana, that the medical use of cannabis could break us away from the best part about medical cannabis is you can grow it yourself and use it yourself without any other outside producer or processor or retailer. You don't need the pharmaceutical factory, the pharmaceutical company, the pharmacy, the pharmacist, the health insurance, the doctor's prescription. You can plant a seed in the ground and heal yourself with a flower. That's the best part of medical marijuana. But the tactic of medical marijuana put us in the realm of pills and doctors and pharmacists. So it reiterates what I've always been saying, and that is if you want access to whole plant medical mar- whole plant cannabis, if you want access to the cannabis plant, whether it's because it's your sacrament for your religion or because it's your medicine for your condition, you need to get behind people who want it because they just want to get high. Because so long as you maintain artificial reasons as to why someone has the right to use cannabis you face the possibility of being left out.
MFer, I want more iced tea. Oh no. When Bill O'Reilly calls you an MFer, you know something's up. And I know what's up. It's 420 here in beautiful legal Potland, Oregon, where I can uh, light this joint and I can smoke it legally. That's what I'm going to do. If you can do so, I would encourage you to do so as well. If you're an adult. We'll be back in two minutes. Stick around. Warning. Hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they pay me to say that. This is the Rush Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, everyone. 23 and a half after the hour. And uh, continuing our look at the international marijuana news, we just talked about Australia. Now, uh, let me go back to France. We had that story from Paris, France, about this parliamentary minister who uh, suggested that, hey, prohibition's not working. I mean, uh, look around you. We've got prohibition since 1970 in France, and uh, our kids use marijuana more than any other kids in Europe. French kids, 15% of French 15-year-olds, according to the World Health Organization, have consumed marijuana. And so this, uh, this minister committed a gaffe, which in politics is described as inadvertently telling the truth. <laughs> and in this case, the gaffe was telling the truth that prohibition in France isn't working. You've got the highest teen rate of marijuana use, yet you've had prohibition since 1970. Your war on drugs is not working. But he suggested that maybe we ought to start looking at doing some decriminalization in stages for adults. Oh, no, no, no. There is a terrible, terrible outcry from both the left and the right in France. One of his fellow party members, socialist party members, jumped all over him on this measure, saying, what do you say? Uh, uh, we have let our guard down in the fight against drugs. That's a terrible French accent, which is ironic as I'm of French descent. <laughs> and then on the right, uh, the former prime minister said legalization of cannabis would be an extremely permissive signal to send to young people. And it just warms my heart to know that reefer madness has got, you know, it's international, like all over the world, different countries, different cultures, different languages. They all have the same basic concepts. What about the children? Watsi exists in France. <laughs> what about the children? We have let our guard down again in the fight against drugs. Um, but again, you have to ask these people, why do you think what you're doing is working when you've got the highest rate? And then you look over to Spain, right next door <laughs> to France. Spain, they have these cultivation clubs, right? You can, you can join a co-op. Now, it's tough. It's like, you know, you got to be sponsored. Like somebody in the co-op's got to know you. And sponsor you, and you got to be a Spanish citizen, and then then you can be sponsored to join this special club that you all share in the expense of cultivating cannabis, and then you get your cannabis. So that's going on in Spain. Got plenty of adults over there smoking. Then you've got uh, uh, Amsterdam. You got the Netherlands to the other side of France, up north a bit, 
that has had its famously tolerant policy since the 1970s, while France was busy banning it, the Netherlands, the Dutch, were busy selling it in coffee shops, taking it away from the hard drugs market. And so what do you see? Well, you see Spain and and Holland, not even in the top uh, percentages there, the top eight of the World Health Organization countries on kids that smoke pot. France is number one. (laughs) So just like we've seen, you know, in America, you try to prohibit it. And for some reason, more kids are using it. And this led to an article that I wrote today for high times. And I I missed my deadline. So I don't know if it got in uh, today. I I apologize, please. I'm sorry. (laughs) I was late. But um, and that is this. What about the children argument? And it's one of the few arguments that's left that they've got. Uh, the prohibitionists have that they gain any traction whatsoever, this Watsy thing. And it's because nothing shuts down the logic circuits in a parent like threatening their kid's safety. So when you have this argument, when you're dealing with what about the children, Watsy, understand the battle that you're fighting is not one of logic. It's one of emotion. So the first step is to leverage that fear of their kids for their kids <laughs> and maybe in some cases of their kids uh, leverage that fear for their children to our advantage. They need to fear the effect of prohibition on their kids more than whatever it is they're imagining legalization is going to be. Prohibition needs to become the enemy. Don't try to extinguish the fear first. Redirect the fear. I call this rhetorical jujitsu. Jiu-jitsu is a uh, martial art that uses an opponent's force in redirection. Rather than trying to stop the attack, you redirect it to harm the opponent. So this is one of those redirections. We've got a fear circuit activated. <gasps> oh, no, kids and weed. Ah! And say, yeah, oh, no, kids and weed. They're getting it now, even though we've tried to ban it. It's happening now. You need to get, bring people to understanding that... The prohibition that exists now is unacceptable because it's a failed policy that does not work. It does not protect your children. We need them to fear the prohibition more than they fear the legalization. And one of the quick sound bites that does that is drug dealers don't check ID. It's one of the best responses responses that our activists have come up with because it implicitly frames that status quo as a danger to the kids. They've got easy access to marijuana now in a system that doesn't care if they're underaged. So at least if we create a system that does care if they're underaged, won't that help? And I always, you know, you got to be careful about this because you don't want to imply that legalizing marijuana means kids will never get marijuana. We've got legal alcohol now. We've got legal cigarettes now, and kids get access to those. We've got legal prescription drugs kids aren't supposed to have. They get access to those. And, you know, it happens. So don't get caught in the trap of saying, you know, legalization is going to, you know, drug dealers don't check IDs, and then once we check IDs, no kids will ever have weed. No, that, that's not going to help. you got to be careful about this because they'll, they'll bring up, well, you know, alcohol's banned, but when I was underaged, We used to get around that, you know, you knew a guy with a fake ID or you knew a particular store clerk who wasn't too careful or you'd have an adult buy the booze for you, you know, get some guy sitting outside the 7-Eleven or whatever. The answer for that is yes, 
But at some point in that process, you had to corrupt an adult to get the booze, right? Either the store clerk with the fake ID or the store clerk not being responsible or by corrupting that adult, paying the money to buy the six pack, right? You couldn't just go to Tommy, the tequila dealer in the high school parking lot and buy your tequila. You had to get an adult involved at some point, right? And the point here is to show that legalization isn't going to make it worse. It could make it better, but leave that as an implication. Don't get caught staking your claim on, yes, once we legalize, it'll be so much better for kids. It might not be. It might just be the same like what we've seen in Colorado and Washington where the use has kind of stayed the same. I believe that the use stays the same because the kids have already had their access. They've already got all the access they need. This is where you pivot to saying that, you know, nothing ever eliminates teen access to drugs. We've got legal alcohol, tobacco, and prescriptions. The question is, how easy do you make it? And this is where you start to paint legalization as the answer to that problem is is saying, you know, with prohibition, we make marijuana so ridiculously profitable by restricting access that there's profit in being a weed dealer. The reason there aren't any high school tequila dealers isn't because teenagers don't like to drink. We know that's not true. It's because there's no way to profit from it. There's no way for a kid to buy a case of tequila and sit in a high school parking lot and sell it at a markup and make money on it. And then you start hitting them with some data. And this is where I point out that you know, Washington and Colorado, the, the kids' access didn't change. They, they, the, the dealer network they've got didn't go away, and it's not going to go away. The point of legalization is it doesn't make it any easier for them. And we hope it makes it harder. Since 1975, the government's been asking 12th graders how easy it would be for them to score weed. And this is where you lay the point down that what's going on now doesn't work. For 40 years now, since 1975, for 40 years, between 80 and 91% of the high school seniors said it would be easy or fairly easy to score weed. But last year, for the first time ever, Fewer than 80% of the seniors said they could easily score weed. Now, yeah, it's barely below 80%. It's 79.5. But still, after three years of legalization, it hasn't gotten easier for kids to get weed, and it's get tiny bit harder. And then sometimes you'll receive a rebuttal that's based in fear-mongering that's been pushed by the Rocky Mountain high-intensity drug trafficking area and other prohibitionists that'll say, oh, but uh, Colorado has far greater teenage marijuana use rates than the rest of the country. See, legalized marijuana, more kids are smoking pot in Colorado than any other state. Well, this is where you have to follow that up with, yes, don't disagree. Yes, more kids in Colorado smoke than any other state. And they always have. Colorado's always had greater use rates after legalization and before legalization, before medical marijuana and after medical marijuana. Legalization doesn't make people smoke pot. Where people already smoke pot, they more likely favor legalization. Got to get the causation in the right order here. There's a reason why Washington, Oregon, California, Colorado were some of the first states 
to pass medical marijuana. And it wasn't that medical marijuana made more people smoke pot in those states. It's because there was already more popularity in smoking pot, more acceptance in marijuana culture in those states. And that leads to reforms. Whether or not a state has legal marijuana or medical marijuana is a reflection of how much that state already approves of marijuana. It doesn't cause more people to approve of it. Well, actually, it does after a while when they realize the sky hasn't fallen. But it doesn't cause them to use marijuana is my point. Now, whenever you're dealing with kids, you also may get some of these prohibition talking points. And when we come back from our break, we'll tackle some of the most popular ones, like when they say Kids could lose eight points of IQ, or if they smoke pot, it's going to lead to worse life outcomes by the time they turn into middle age. We'll debunk that and more, the typical prohibitionist talking points, right here on Toker Talk Radio, the voice of the marijuana nation. I'm Radical Russ, live from beautiful legal potland, Oregon. We're going to take a break so we can pay some of the bills, and if you would like to sponsor the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com, please let me know. You can reach me as Radical Russ everywhere. Gmail, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, SoundCloud, YouTube, LinkedIn, Snapchat, uh, what else? Skype, <laughs> Masteroots, Doobie, uh, Instagram. <laughs> we'll be right back. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Tuned into the Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation, only on CannabisRadio.com. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? Watsy, what about the children? That's one of the prohibitionists' main talking points, and one of the few halfway decent ones they have left. And I, I mean that with respect to how much effect it has, not how logical it is. I mean, really, if you're worried about the children, wouldn't you want to take marijuana out of criminal hands? A a whole lot of what prohibition depends on is a fantasy. It's this idea that you can eliminate the law of supply and demand. That there could be this consumer product that people really, really want. And just through declaration of law say that the people can't have that product. Now, this can have varying degrees of success depending on what the product is. Okay. When we're talking about something that's a synthetic, something that's manufactured, something that requires a lot of expertise to put together, the government might have some degree of success in preventing people from getting their hands on that. Now, they'll create a black market in it, and that black market will be violent, And it will raise the price of said product. But there can be limited degrees of success. But when we're talking about a product that is a freaking weed, (laughs) it's a plant, right? That can be grown clandestinely, outdoors and indoors. There's no possible way that any administrative fiat can declare it 
to no longer be so, to no longer exist, to just completely eradicate it, just can't happen. Not without the application of techniques that would be so repulsive to the mainstream that it would be counter to their goals. Like, you know, if they defoliated, you know, the Agent Orange all through you know the humble Trinity Mountains and all that. Yeah, you might have greater degree of success, but nobody's going to put up with that. Nobody's going to allow that to happen. If you had death penalty for marijuana possession, maybe that starts to reduce some use rates. You know, if we were Singapore or, or one of these, you know, Malaysia or something. Yeah, but nobody's going to go with that. Nobody's going to accept that. It's not in the realm of American possibility. But these what about the children arguments, a lot of them are predicated on this idea, this very idea that if that by prohibiting it, we're actually helping the kids in some way. We're keeping it away from them somehow. And obviously, that's not true. Whether or not you think it works or not, it's not. <laughs> we have the numbers. We know how many kids between the ages of 12 and 17 end up using marijuana. And for this discussion, 18's an adult, folks. That's, I'm sorry. That's what I'm going with for this discussion. 18's an adult. So we know how many kids 12 to 17 are using marijuana. Obviously, what we're doing now isn't keeping it out of their hands. So given that marijuana is going to get into their hands because we've had 40 years of really punitive laws to try to stop it, and nobody anymore wants to make them more punitive. So given that there's going to be access for these kids, they're going to get a hold of weed, who should be in control of that? Should we continue to let criminals be in control of that? Because they are right now. And it's happening right now. Kids are getting their access to weed. And when we say criminals in that context, keep in mind that we're talking about people that grow a plant and provide it to other people who want it. Really no crime going on there. What becomes criminal is the interactions between actors in that market who cannot settle their disputes in court. That's what where the criminality comes into it. And it usually only comes into it at the higher levels of distribution. For a lot of people that are getting their hands on weed, they're getting it from a guy who knows a guy. And the guy is the guy who's growing the weed. There's a guy who grows the weed, there's a couple of the guys that know that guy, and then there's a bunch of people that know the guy who knows the guy. And that's usually the extent of most people's weed network. Not a whole lot of people that are linked in necessarily to the whole Mexican cartels or big violent gangs access uh, aspect. I will, I will concede that point to some degree, to Kevin Sabet and his ilk. Now, I've had my experiences. Most of the time, I knew the guy. I was the guy who knew the guy, right? I knew the guy who was growing the weed. I knew the farmer who was producing that plant and getting it straight from the source. But there were also circumstances where I found myself in some very shady situations with... Uh, Mexican cartel members in Caldwell, Idaho and other places, Mountain Home and other places. So I've seen it. I know what's happening on all these levels. Regardless, if we're talking about someone getting it from a Mexican cartel or someone getting it from Clyde, the guy down the street they know, we're still dealing with a market that isn't regulated or tested or inspected in any way. So given that the kids are going to get their hands on some weed... Should it be weed that hasn't been inspected or tested or labeled or anyone knows anything about it and possibly comes with a heaping helping of criminal activity and violence? Or 
should the kids get weed from at least some grower who was licensed or some shop that was licensed in some way if it was to be diverted from those places? It's not going to get any worse, right? Like the weed they're getting now isn't going to get any more illegal and isn't going to get any more pesticide or moldy or anything. You know, the risks they're taking now all still exist. But if they got some that was diverted from the legal market, at least it would be safer, wouldn't it? Just like, you know, kids in the 1920s, when they got their hands on alcohol, it could have been bathtub gin, could have made them go blind. Now, when kids get a hold of a bottle of gin, at least we know it's not going to make them go blind. They might get drunk, wreck their car, might alcohol overdose. (laughs) There's all those possibilities, but at least they're not going to go blind. We've reduced the harm somewhat. But that's the thing is these, these prohibitionists have this idea that legalization invents marijuana. If we legalize, oh no, there'll be marijuana. No, marijuana's here. Marijuana's already here. And there are already kids that are using it. So this is where this false belief system theirs comes in when they start to point out all these health effects that might happen to kids if they use marijuana. Now, a lot of them are not true. Some of them have some degree of truth to them. We generally agree that young people shouldn't be using a whole lot of marijuana for non-medical purposes because of their developing brain. Now, we don't know what to what degree it might affect that, but, you know, we are talking about a developing brain. Why not just err on the side of caution? My point has always been that when you're a young man between the ages of 12 and, say, 21, you're crazy anyway. Your brain is all so full with hormones and puberty that, <laughs> you know, rational thought isn't always your first, second, or even third option. Let's not add mind-altering substances to the mix. But I digress. The point of this is that the prohibitionists have this idea that legalization invents marijuana. And if we legalize that these terrible things would happen to kids. Well, I always turn that back around on and say, look, the marijuana exists now. And so the terrible things that you're warning us about are risks they already take. And they already have, like we said, 80 to 91% easy access to this stuff. And the stuff they have access to isn't tested or labeled or regulated or or inspected, and nobody's checking their ID for it. So what I'm proposing with legalization isn't going to make anything worse. What, you think their access is going to go above 80% once it's legal? I don't think so. As legalization drops the price of marijuana, as we've seen in Washington and Oregon, and somewhat in Colorado, as legalization drops the price of marijuana, it becomes less lucrative to be a pot dealer. There becomes less access in the black market. And what access does exist doesn't make as much profit on marijuana. These guys increasingly will be less and less likely to want to sell weed. This will reduce the access for kids more than any prohibition has ever been able to accomplish. And so far, we've seen a tiny, tiny decline. Two of the other talking points you'll hear in this respect with the, uh, the what about the children They'll cite that Dunedin study that kids will lose eight points of IQ. Oh, no, you smoke pot as a teenager. By the time you're middle aged, you'll lose eight points of IQ. And the other one is you smoke pot as a teenager. This is the, the most recent one. You smoke pot as a teenager and it leads to worse life outcomes. You know, lower social status, less happiness, more likelihood of, you know, interspousal violence and less income and attainment and et cetera. Right. So 
it can be tricky discussing these things because you don't want to try to dismiss the harms of marijuana to children. Trying to convince their parent it's no big deal if their kid smokes pot just activates that emotional fear circuit about their kids. It's going to erase your logical argument. So don't don't try to dismiss it, right? We don't want to try to say, no, your kid can smoke pot and he'll be as smart as ever, which is true, actually, but it's a hard thing to rhetorically defend. So you can't let the reefer man stand. You have to address it. I usually say, look, no one wants kids smoking pot, but that IQ study was soundly debunked in the same journal that printed the study. And a recent study of identical twins found no cognitive difference between the twin who smoked pot and the twin who didn't smoke pot. So we're trying to say it's not going to make things any worse. Don't let them try to put you into a position of saying it's going to make it better. And then pivot it to the danger. It's not to say we want teenagers smoking pot, but legal or not, some kids will use it. Just like we don't want a teen dying from a batch of Al Capone's moonshine, we don't want drug dealers selling prohibition marijuana to kids laced with God knows what. And on that second point, the whole marijuana outcomes thing, use their own rhetoric against them. Put the fear back in the parents' heart that these marijuana laws are going to hurt their kids more than the marijuana could. You can say, yeah, look, there's no doubt that marijuana use leads to worse life outcomes in general because people who get caught with marijuana get expelled from school. They get fired from their jobs. They get locked up in cages. So if your kid did get caught with weed, he's experimenting in college or something gets caught, would he or she be better off with a criminal record living in your basement rather than going to college or working? See, I hit him right there with, The kids living in the basement. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. (laughs) If this prohibition does affect my kid, who are they going to turn to? They're going to be dropped out of college. And, and, you know, a lot of parents are ignorant on this. They think, you know, getting caught with weeds, a slap on the wrist. And so I don't like my kid smoking weed. The cops caught him. He'll get the slap on the wrist. That'll turn my kid's life around and he'll start making better decisions. Not realizing that, no, it's not a slap on the wrist. It can have a devastating impact at this critical juncture in a young person's life when they're building their early uh, employment options, when they're building their early educational options. A, a weed bust can be devastating. And, and not just for the kid, but also on the parents, on their pocketbook. Who's going to hire those lawyers? Where's that kid going to live? He's going to come back, live in your basement, and you're going to be paying lawyer bills. So we got to turn this argument, this what about the children argument, back on them by saying, yeah, what about the children? What about the children getting untested, tainted weed? What about the children not being checked for ID? What about the children who can make easy, good money being weed dealers? What about the children who don't get good logical information about this drug and then may think they were being lied to about the other drugs? And of course, what about the children who do need this as medicine to stop epilepsy or multiple sclerosis or something, who are denied this wonder, this ability to lead a real meaningful life? We're going to take a break. We'll come back and close up shop here on a Tuesday. I'm Radical Russ, live in Portland, Oregon. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com.
Hello, Mr. Man. Hi. I'm doing... I'm, I'm working. I'm sorry. No food till this is done. This is the Rush Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We're just closing up shop here on the Rush Belleville Show, but we'll be back live tomorrow from Refuge PDX and our coverage of the uh, pre-party for Blazers versus Nugs. It's a uh, special uh, party with Uncle Spliffy, Cliff Robinson, so we're really looking forward to that. Also got a message from Jackie in our chat room who wanted me to remind you all about the Podcast Awards. So you can go to podcastawards.com and you can nominate your favorite podcast for different categories, I guess. And um, I'm not going to tell you which podcast to nominate as your favorite. You can decide. (laughs) But it's at uh, podcastawards.com if you're interested in doing such a thing. Uh, Also got a new piece up on the Huffington Post in their politics section uh, addressing Hillary Clinton's latest comment. Oh, it's a a whopper, folks. Uh, Here's the actual quote. She says, Most of the guns that are used in crimes and violence and killings in New York come from out of state. And the state that has the highest number of per capita gun, the highest per capita number of guns that end up committing those crimes in New York come from Vermont. Per capita guns. What what kind of bullshit stat is that? (laughs) so what she's referring to is that there were 55 guns 55 guns that made their way into new york in 2014 out of 4008 that were happening crimes that was 1.4 percent of the the crime guns in new york came from vermont 30 what 4 38 percent something like that came from uh, 34.9 percent came from new york and 42.4% came from six southern states, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, and Florida, or what uh, gun advocates call the Iron uh, Corridor, the Iron Highway or whatever. Per capita guns. That's like if there's a guy in the house next door who has a gun who's a lunatic, and there's an apartment building next door that has a thousand people in it, and a hundred of them have guns that are lunatics. I should be more worried about the guy in the house because there's 100% per capita gun ownership in that house versus 10% per capita gun ownership over there in the apartment building. (laughs) Hillary Clinton's getting desperate, folks. That's up on Huffington Post in their politics section. Check it out. It's called Hillary's BS Per Capita Gun Stat. For everyone here at CannabisRadio.com, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you tomorrow. Until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down to earth.